So open your Bibles to Daniel, the book of Daniel. You also will want, if you didn't get it, there's a handout that was with the worship guides back there. You will want to get that handout, and I'll explain more as we move through this lesson tonight. Wes is going to bring them around. So open your Bibles to Daniel, to Daniel chapter 1. What we're going to do is we're going to introduce, and I'll explain more of this later, we're going to just introduce this new series. The new series has this title. Oh, you're waiting your hand for him, right? Okay. Um, the new series has this title. Tell me again, who is in charge here? I just think that's fitting for when you're reading Daniel, that that's the question that's actually being addressed all the way through Daniel. So we're going to read verse 1 and 2 to give us a little historical background, and then we're going to drop down to verse 21, and I think all of this will fit as I get into uh, what we're going to do tonight. So, out of reverence for God's Word as it is read, please join me in standing as I read Daniel 1, 2, and then verse 21. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought, to them, brought them to the land of Shinar. Shinar. It's unusual that this name is used for Babylon. The last time it was used, if I remember correctly, is clear back in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. So he calls it, notice the, Daniel's calling it the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then down at verse 21, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Daniel, whose never-failing providence orders all things in both heaven and on earth, during this whole sermon series in Daniel, please come and remove from us those things, those imaginations, those perceptions, those harmful ways of thinking that may damage us. Give us that which is truly profitable for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. You'll want to have that handout because that's uh, for you to take and actually, uh, if you can, stick it in your Bible for future reference or if you carry files around or whatever you do because I think you'll find it helpful in your future readings of Daniel. Let me talk to you just a moment about a ripe, healthy compost pile. Compost piles are a good thing if you're growing a garden. I have two of them. They're excellent things. They're not fun things, mind you, but they're excellent things for your garden. You take your yard, and after you mow your yard, you take the clippings and you throw them in your compost pile. If after Thanksgiving, your neighbors have bales of hay that they want to get rid of because they don't want them anymore, you go grab the bales of hay and put them in your compost pile. You take your solid food waste, like eggshells and any uncooked foods, like parts of broccoli or whatever you've trimmed up, or parts, you know, the uh, carrot peelings and all that stuff. You throw those in there, and then you get some manure. If you have somebody that's nice enough to have some manure and give you some, you throw it in there as well. And then you water it. And sometimes you have to throw some nitrogen in the, in the compost pile and water it to help break things down. Then on occasion, you have to go in, you have to turn the compost pile over to wake up the microbes, those living organisms in your compost pile, so they'll get back to business of breaking down all that solid matter and turning it into nutritious dirt. As I said, I have two compost piles. I've built them with uh, uh, 
palates, and they are messy, and they're dirty, and they're labor-intensive, they're slimy, and on occasion, they're stinky. But the end result is yummy dirt for your garden. You get down there, you, you turn it over, you go to the bottom, and you start pulling out that dirt that it's made in the bottom, and you throw that in your garden. It's amazing how it puts life into your garden. Why am I talking about compost piles? Because I want you to think about today's inauguration of this series on Daniel as a yummy compost pile. We're building a compost pile so that you can get some good growth as we move ahead. So some of this is technical details, but it's to help you as we start working through Daniel to remember to go, oh, that's right, this is where it is, this is what's going on, and that will help you keep your head as we work through Daniel. So first off, we want to talk about the build-out of Daniel. You know, as you take a building and you start framing it and you start building on it, it's the build-out. And so Daniel has a build-out, it has a structure. There's a very easy structure to see that most English translations will only alert you to in the footnotes, but it's really important. Chapter 1 is in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic, which is what Nebuchadnezzar spoke. So chapter 1 is in Hebrew that Daniel spoke. Chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic that Nebuchadnezzar spoke, and it was, a, it was the royal language. And then in starting in chapter 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. Now that's pretty significant. It's almost as if Daniel intends for Nebuchadnezzar and anybody else who is Babylonian to be able to read portions of Daniel and learn something from it. And Hebrew and Aramaic are sister languages, but they are not the same. Okay? So I'm going to give you a, one silly little example. Okay? You ready? And it's from Scripture. I was just reading it the other day, and it caught my attention. I thought I'd give it to you. So in Genesis chapter 31, down in verse 47, Jacob has left Laban. And uh, you may remember the story of Jacob and Laban. And so Jacob is running away from Laban, and he's off going back to his, his own homeland, and Laban is coming up behind him, and all the things that happened. Well, Jacob and Laban are now going to separate, and they set up a stone called the witness. This is how it goes in Scripture. Laban called the stone Jager Shahudatha, which is Aramaic. Jacob, or Laban called it Jager Shahudatha, but Jacob, in Hebrew, called it Galid. Do you hear the difference? Aramaic was this long name, and then the Hebrew was smaller, and both of them say, mean the same exact saying, the stone of witness. So Aramaic and Hebrew are similar, they're sister languages, but they're different, and you really have to know them both to understand them. So it's very peculiar that Daniel begins in Hebrew, and then it picks up from chapter 2 through 7 in Aramaic, that the language that Nebuchadnezzar would have used, and then it returns to Hebrew. There's all kinds of possible reasons why that's the case. But I think it's because chapters 2 through 7 are meant to be approachable by people like Nebuchadnezzar and all of his uh, political leaders under him. And so then, chapter 1 of Daniel is the introduction to the book. It actually lays out the historical background. It tells you what happened. It gives you a first scene so that you kind of get the sense, the lay of the land as you start moving through Daniel. So Daniel 1 is the introduction. Daniel's, Daniel chapter 2 through chapter 7 emphasize that the kingdom belongs to God. And it's really interesting because Daniel chapter 2 through 7 
are parallels. There's parallels all the way through, and this is what I mean. I'm going to give you an example. So Daniel chapter 2 talks about is Nebuchadnezzar's vision of four kingdoms. When you get to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four kingdoms, right? And then both of those, of those four kingdoms are destroyed by something else that is permanent. Very interesting. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 are parallel. Then you get to chapter 3 and chapter 6. Chapter 3, you have God's people being thrown into a pit, into a furnace. In chapter 6, what happens to Daniel? Anybody remember? Something to do with lions? Daniel thrown in a lion den. Very interesting. Another parallel. God's people being thrown into something of a pit. Right? Then you get to chapter 4 and chapter 5. And here you have Nebuchadnezzar chapter 4. You have his descendant Belshazzar in chapter 5. And what you have is you have these two different kings uh, whom God is disciplining. God disciplines Nebuchadnezzar in 4. He goes crazy for a while. God, God disciplines Belshazzar in chapter 5. The handwriting on the wall. Mene, mene, tickle, new farson. Right? One king acquiesces. Nebuchadnezzar acquiesces. The other king fails completely. Belshazzar. So it's really interesting how chapters 2 through 7 fit together as parallels. And then finally, chapters 8 through 12, the last part of Daniel, revolve around the people to whom the kingdom is given. There's a lot more I can say. It's very interesting that the visions Daniel receives begins in chapter 7, and it begins in Aramaic, and then the rest of the visions are in Hebrew. One of the things I'll just say very quickly, all of those visions from chapter 7 through chapter 12 are talking about the same time frame from the 6th century B.C. to probably the middle of the 2nd century B.C. The visions are almost completely talking about what is future to Daniel, not, as, not what is future to us. And I'm going to say it again. Daniel 7 through 12 are talking more about what is future to Daniel and not really about what is future to us. And I think that's important to keep in mind more as we get there. And so I've given you an outline. You'll see that in your, your handout. I gave you an outline right here. just took a picture of it. It's from a, a, the commentary that I just read and reviewed recently that Zondervan asked me to review. And I read and reviewed it, I think, at the end of December, written by a woman named Wendy Wider. It's called Daniel, God's Kingdom Will Endure. And you can see the outline. I think if you keep that outline, you can trim it down. Maybe it's cut out all the stuff on the side where I hand wrote my notes there and you have to fit into your Bible so you have an outline. I think it will help you as time goes by to go back and look at that as you think about Daniel. So there's the build-out of Daniel. So let's talk then, uh, get a little broader, and let's talk about uh, bad figs and good figs. Bad figs and good figs. So Alan read Jeremiah 24, and if you go back and look at Jeremiah 24, this is the time frame when Daniel started serving. Jeremiah 24 is the time frame when Daniel was carried off captive to Babylon and when he began to serve, chapter 1. So you have to read Jeremiah 24, and then we're going to go to Jeremiah 29 very briefly. And so you see, as you start in Jeremiah 24, it says, Joachim... Um, uh, Jeconiah, the son of Joachim, the king of Judah, together with others, were taken into captivity. And so Daniel see, or Jeremiah sees this vision of good figs and bad figs. And then God defines the good figs in verse 4. 
The good figs are those whom he has just sent. Isn't that interesting? Whom he has just sent into exile. All those people that went with Jeconiah. And that would be Daniel. Daniel went in that time frame. Those are the good figs that he has very good promises. He has very strong promises for them. If you look down in verse uh, verse 4 through 8, I will regard them as good. And it's not because they've done anything good. I will regard them as good, says the Lord. I will regard them as good. It's not because they did good. I will regard them as good. And then he goes on to say, I sent them away from this place. I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up, not tear them down. I will plant them, not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am Yahweh and they shall be my people. I will be their God, but they shall return to me with their whole heart. So Daniel is taken into captivity. He's part of what God is here describing as the good figs. Now, the bad figs are those that stay in Jerusalem under King Zedekiah. That's a whole other sermon, and we're not going to go there. But you need to now go to chapter 29 of Jeremiah. In chapter 29, so everybody go to chapter 29 of Jeremiah. God has Jeremiah write a letter to the exiles in Babylon, which means even including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This letter would have come to them as well. And in this letter, God says to Jeremiah, he says, this is what I want you to write to them. He says, down in verse 4, I sent, I have sent them into exile from Jerusalem and Babylon, and so they need to, while they're in Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord, pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In its shalom is the Hebrew word. In its shalom, in the city's shalom, Babylon's shalom, you will find your shalom. So then God goes on to promise, down in verse 10. I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for evil. Plans for shalom is the Hebrew word, and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That letter is written to the exiles in Babylon, and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are those who are some of the recipients. And so it's not a surprise then that what you have going on in Daniel is it working out of what God has written in this letter. Seek the peace of the city. One of the things you will notice is that Daniel never says to Nebuchadnezzar, you're a loser and I want you to be destroyed and I'm going to sabotage you and take you down. Instead, you find Daniel actually working towards the peace and the welfare of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he will even at one point when he sees a vision, when Nebuchadnezzar sees a vision and Daniel's interpreting it, he says, Your Majesty, may what happens in this vision happen to your enemies, not you. He's working out Jeremiah 29. And then, what do you find? What gets Daniel thrown into the lion's den in Jeremiah and Daniel chapter 6? You remember what it is? 
What is, Jer- what is Daniel going to continue to do even though now a law has been passed? Pray. And he prays toward Jerusalem. He's seeking the Lord. He's doing exactly what God says here in His promise. You will seek My face. You will turn to Me. You will pray toward Me. Right? So you see Daniel actually doing those things. So Jeremiah 29 is written to the people who, along with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were in Babylon. I think that's extremely important. When you get to Daniel 9, you will find Daniel praying to the Lord and saying, Lord, you promised in Jeremiah that we would only be in exile 70 years. It's exactly what God says here. If you look here in Jeremiah 29, when he says, um, um, uh, where is it? it's in here somewhere. Uh, he tells them, it's in here. He tells them that he's, they're going to be in, be in exile for 70 years. And so this is part of the, what he's referring back to is what God wrote, what God had written to him and to them while they were in exile. He's going to come back to Jeremiah and mention it in that prayer in Daniel chapter 9. So it's important to see because what you have now is you go, oh, Jeremiah overlaps with Daniel. Oh, by the way, as you go and read Ezekiel, you find out Ezekiel overlaps with Daniel. And then at the end of Daniel's life, oh, Daniel's life overlaps with the book of Ezra and the, and the end of Second Chronicles. So I'll mention that and show you that in a minute. So you have this connection in Daniel where you have this meaningful connection between earlier parts or, or some of the prophets, Daniel, and then the future of God's people and even Nehemiah, or, uh, Nehemiah later. And so on one level, Daniel chapter 1 through 6 is the extended set of stories where you have four good figs, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, four of the good figs who have received the letter of Jeremiah 29, working out Jeremiah 29. On another level, as you step back and you look at the whole book of Daniel, you have all of Daniel actually working out God's promise that he made back in Jeremiah 24, that I will return to you, you'll return to me, you'll seek me, I'll bring you back to this place, I'll plant you and not tear you down, and all those promises in, Dan- in Jeremiah 24 and Jeremiah 29, you have those actually being worked out in all of Daniel. How will God do that? And you have that. And the answer is going to be a little surprising, especially when you get to the visions. Anyways. So there's the bad figs, good figs. We looked at the build-out, the structure. We looked at the bad figs, good figs. And now we need to look at the bookends. And the bookends are the pagan leaders when Daniel was, was there in Babylon. And so it begins with, in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? In the time of Nebuchadnezzar, these things happened. God gave Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, into, or Jehoiakim, excuse me, into the hand of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and he also God gave some of the furnishings of his temple, so that way God looks like he's losing, because right? he's giving part of his temple to these pagans. That begins Daniel's time, and then Daniel's time ends with Cyrus, the Persian. Cyrus, the uh, um, Daniel was there until the, the first year of King Cyrus. So that gives you the time span. Those are the bookends. Well, Cyrus, oh, that's right, Second Chronicles. Remember, Second Chronicles ends reminding us that it is God who, who is there in Medea and Persia and Babylon, and he's the one who stirs the heart of Cyrus, the king, 
to send the people of Judah back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple. Oh yeah. And if you read the very first part of Ezra, chapter 1, you see the exact same reminder. I think that's really important for us to realize that that's, those are the bookends of Daniel. That therefore connects two seasons of Israel's or Judah's life. Daniel is that connecting point between those two seasons. But it's important for another reason. Both Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, God calls both of them my servant. So you've got the references. I put those in your handout. In Jeremiah 25, 27, and 43, he calls Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord calls Nebuchadnezzar the pagan. He calls him my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. And then you go to Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 3. He calls Cyrus, who's nowhere on the scene at the time that Isaiah 45 is written, but he talks about Cyrus, he mentions him by name, and he says, he is my anointed, he is my servant. It's very interesting. God actually has claimed both of those pagan kings as his servant. And that shapes the way you then read Daniel, and you, you understand, maybe even start to understand, geopolitical events and world history events. Oh, two pagan kings, and you have no problems calling them my servant. So on the back side of that handout, you'll see the really cool chart that I stole from. It's supposed to say Crossroads Bible Church, not Course Roads. Sorry, typo on my part. I have no idea where Crossroads Bible Church is, but this chart is online, and they said I could have it for free, and so I thought, great. But if you look at it, you'll see the bookends. That yellow part is, when, is the time when Daniel is actually serving and then you have Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning. You have Cyrus at the end of that yellow. And if you look through, you have dates. That gives you the time frame when Daniel was serving. And it shows you connections with Je uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And on the back side, it shows you connections with Ezra and Nehemiah. So I want you to have that timeline chart. I hope that will help you. I think and I'm pretty certain that will help you as you work through Daniel on your own. So my friends, there you have it. Our compost pile is almost completely done. And so already, as we begin, just in the introductory stuff, we're already beginning to pick up some important lessons. Let me give you probably four or five of them. Here we go. First off, notice the obviously not so obvious. Who has put all of this together, and who is it that is guiding all of this, and who is putting people in places? Who sent... God's people into exile. Who gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar? Who has called Nebuchadnezzar my servant and hundreds of years or 150 years before Cyrus was even born calls Cyrus my anointed, my servant? Who is it? God. The Lord. The obviously not so obvious is this. Is that God rules and God, notice, rules over and He rules through and He rules by means of non-believing rulers. We have no evidence that Nebuchadnezzar ever came to what we would call saving faith. He does come to some sense of faith, but it may not be saving faith. And Cyrus he uses some language that gives us some hopefulness, but both, as far as we can tell, were non-believing, at least for a portion of their reign. So notice that God rules over, He rules through, He rules by means of non-believing rulers. And he doesn't need their allegiance or their obeisance. 
right? He rules and he leads them. This is one reason why, for example, the, writer of the, the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith, in the Westminster Confession, chapter 23, paragraph 4, say this. It is the duty of people, I think this is in your sermon notes, it is the duty of people to pray for magistrates, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute or other dues, to obey their lawful commands, it's a very important category, because there are also unlawful commands, to obey their lawful commands and to be subject to their authority for conscience sake, infidelity or difference in religion, if they're atheists, if they're Muslims, if they're Buddhists, it doesn't matter, infidelity or difference in religion doth not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority, nor free the people from their due obedience to them. It did not matter whether Nebuchadnezzar came to faith or not, or Cyrus comes to faith or not, their legitimate authorities, God put them there, and Daniel submits to them. And there's the biblical concept, right? So, notice that already we're starting to see, at the very beginning of Daniel, we're starting to see uh, there's a behind-the-scenes backstory in Daniel. And it will help keep us steady. It will help keep us sturdy when the political and internal storms blow up over the bows of our ships and threaten to sink us. Oh, God is over all of this, and sometimes He does. He always rules, and He always rules, through, by means of, and um, uh, over all of these political leaders, even if they're unbelievers. Oh, yes, God rules. Next, as we begin to move into Daniel in earnestness, you'll start to, take, to sense that the backdrop, especially chapters, uh, the first six chapters, the backdrop is God's unseen hand. That his unseen hand is purposefully directing and moving world events along toward an end, toward a goal. And so that means then is that God's rulership may not always be observable. It's his unseen hand. You'll notice even in the first chapter, there are hints that God is actively involved in what happens to Daniel, but he's not right out there in front. You get told a little bit of the backstory to remind you, oh, Yes, God's hand is often unseen. God's unseen hand. So God's rulership may not always be observable and seeable. And yet He is directing and He is moving things along. And that applies to science, it applies to medicine, as well as to the actions of the state. And we call it providence. What we call it, we're good Presbyterians, we call it providence. Whereby God's holy, most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing applies to all of his creatures, including the Nebuchadnezzars and Cyruses, applies to all of his creatures and all of their actions. Sometimes you can look back over your shoulder and see the imprint of God's unseen hand when you're looking backward in time. Sometimes you can. Sometimes you look back and you go, that's clearly God at work. But sometimes you never get that. Sometimes you look back and you go, I'm still not sure if, how God was involved back there. There's lots of little coincidences and chances, as people call it, but I don't see the imprint of God's hand. And that's where Daniel is helping us to remember 
God, by His unseen hand, is directing and ruling. Even when we don't see it, we can have confidence in it. God's unseen hand is directing and ruling to an end of goal. Further, my friends, as we get deeper and deeper into Daniel, we need to recall that as this book unfolds in the halls of political power, chapters 1 through 6, and as the visions play across the screen, chapter 7 through 12, none of Daniel is about Daniel. None of Daniel is about Daniel. It's all about Daniel's God. So instead of singing, Dare to be a Daniel, maybe we should be singing something else like, Dare to believe in Daniel's God. That's what Daniel is moving us toward, is actually believing in this God who is still at work and who's still on the throne even when his people are in captivity somewhere. And so if you walk away from Daniel and you're not more confirmed in your faith in God and if you're not looking more and more to Him than you are to your own charts and diagrams, if you're not more settled in the knowledge of who God is and what He has done, is doing, and will do for His people, then either I have failed you or you have failed to pay attention. This is a book about God. This is a book about God's rulership. This is a book about God's world rescue operation and that nothing in the end will get in its way. Even in the most unlikely and apparently impossible circumstances, God is at work and He is taking history somewhere and it is a great ending. Finally, we put this introduction, and we're almost done. Put this all together. I want to put it in the words of Ralph Davis. And I believe this is in your sermon notes too, not in the handout, but on the back of the worship guide. The words of Ralph Davis. He wrote a book called The Word Became Fresh. I mentioned that book in uh, this last week's pastoral letter. And as he was thinking about Daniel in that book, I thought this was priceless. This is what he wrote. Quote, It may be a pitiful world, but it is also an oppressive world, all too willing to swallow up and spit out God's faithful servants. But they have a God who rescues, a God who preserves his hated and despised people from extinction. If this is an oppressive world, that is because it is an arrogant world where monarchs de jour, monarchs of the moment, swagger along questing for godhood but they run slam into the God who overthrows tyranny, the only one who rules. That summarizes the book of Daniel in a paragraph. Let's pray. Well, God, thank you so much for the book of Daniel. We pray that you would guide us through Daniel. Help us that our faith would be thickened, that it would, be, it would become even more muscular. Our faith in you, not faith in faith, not faith in charts and diagrams faith in you. I pray you help each and every one of us. That even when tyranny reigns, even when there are monarchs de jour who are swaggering towards godhood, we would remember that they are not God and they are momentary and they are fleeting and they will run smack dab into your hand because you are the only one who knows. Bless us the rest of this week. Keep us all safe as we go home tonight through the, the snow and Watch over us and may our homes be safe. Have no more frozen pipes and no leaks. In Jesus' name.